Hello, and welcome to the Collapsed Podcast. My name is Joel. And my name is Matt. And today, we are going to do Pan Am Part 3. So, in the last episode, we ended in 1973, and we started in 1968. We did not move very far, yet there was quite a bit that happened. And at the end of that episode, Iran tried to buy Pan Am, and that deal ultimately fizzled out. So, in this episode, we're going to look at what happens after this. We learned in the end of the second episode that Pan Am is now known as the financially troubled Pan Am. Do they get over this? What ultimately happens? So, we're going to look and see what steps happens. This is going to take us through Sewell's tenure as CEO, and we're going to end this episode at the beginning of the second to last Pan Am CEO. So, let's get started. So we ended in 1973, and we're going to leap forward one whole year to 1974. If you remember, Pan Am seems to be getting the short end of a stick. They have international routes, which they're supposed to have a monopoly on, and their competitors, American Airlines United, are gaining routes through the Civil Aeronautical Board, the regulatory committee, through political favors. And Pan Am is not able to gain any domestic routes. It's feeling pinched. And something that's a bit unique, the employees feel that they are being stiffed by the government as well. And then they're not giving a fair chance. So we see this really interesting movement where in 1974, the employees themselves took up a collection and created an ad in the newspaper. And they listed out a few different points to say, hey, we just want a fair shot at being an airline. So here are the kind of general points that they had. Number one, other companies, airlines, get five times the rate to fly U.S. mail. Number two, Pan Am is paying double the normal interest rates from the U.S. Export-Import Bank loans, which Pan Am is paying 12%. Three, Pan Am is blocked from flying domestically. And four, Pan Am is paying high landing fees. And what does that really mean? So... At this point in time, it cost about $178 to land in L.A. It's about $1,000 in today's money. And remember, this, these are domestic flights, so Pan Am is not really paying these lower fees. Instead, they're flying to exotic places like Sydney, where the fee was $4,200 or $23,000 in today's money. Right. And this is not an issue that's still stuck in the past. This is still an issue today. There was an article that came out that Heathrow in the UK is charging $30, 30 euros, I should say, per person to land in Heathrow. So a 400-passenger airplane today would, is being charged about $12,000. Wow. So That's a lot of money just to land. It is. And those costs are being passed along to the consumer. And that's from anywhere? Fly A flight from anywhere? Yeah. To Heathrow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. However, if you remember... If you are American Airlines, the majority of your flights are domestic. So mm-hmm. having one particular flight to Heathrow, which they don't have at this point. Pan Am actually does have an exclusive right there because of the how tightly controlled the British government has. However, uh, it's not as big of a deal. Whereas Pan Am, most of their flights, if all of them are almost international, and they're paying these huge fees. Right. They have costs that nobody else is experiencing. Yes. And another sticking point, this is not one of their points, but another thing that's happening right now is American Airlines is developing basically the gold standard that's still used today, this hub-and-spoke model, 
where you have one hub airport. So for Delta today, it's Atlanta. And they may have other ones too, depending on the size of the airline, where they shuttle in the smaller planes to this hub and they can fill their larger planes and then send them out. So it's a more economical and efficient way. And it's a way to reduce costs. Mm -hmm. Pan Am doesn't really have this option. They don't, they don't really have spokes. They just, they just have hubs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So these are some hurdles and the employees, the pilots understand this. So the ad hit the New York Times and the employees rallied around this and said, we just want a fair chance. They rushed to D.C. It was called, and I I have to say, I I like a good acronym, and I think this is a a good acronym. It's called AWARE. Airmen worried about remaining employed. (laughs) (laughs) It is on point, and I think it states their cause quite clearly. So you have all these Panama employees, they flood D.C. This was different than what was normally done. Congressmen are used to having nice parties. They go to nice houses and balls and all sorts of fun things. These are just people. They're just showing up and they're just lobbying. For example, one employee was decided he found a senator and he just ran with him and he just kept pressuring and pressuring him to get a meeting. Like running alongside him on the street? Literally running alongside him on the street. Found him on his morning jog. Wow. That's a way to get things done, I guess. I don't know if you could do that today. <laughs> Maybe if you've <laughs> got you know not. a camera and you're part of the news crew. but Yeah. As you can imagine, Pan Am supported this. They didn't give out huge amounts of support, but they definitely didn't do anything to discourage this behavior. And all this pressure from the employees, it worked. To a degree, the first thing that happened was the passing of the International Air Transportation Fair Competitive Practices Act. That sounds like it went through a lot of committees. It's a a mouthful. (laughs) Yeah. Essentially, it just lowered the interest rate for Pan Am to uh, the normal 6%. Otherwise, nothing unfortunately really changed. Pan Am didn't get any domestic routes. There were two other concessions. They did get a bump in their mail rate. And government officials would fly in Pan Am when they were able to. Kind of the flag bearer of the United States. Hmm. So, what does Pan Am do next? This little gambit didn't work. So they tried to merge with TWA. And as you can imagine, that didn't get approved due to a block from the Civil Aeronautics Board, if you remember, due to, of course, regulations and political handshakes. However... Even though they weren't able to merge, they were able to swap some of their international routes that made them a little more efficient. And it was estimated to save, if you can believe their accountants at Pan Am anyway, (laughs) (laughs) uh, somewhere between 17 and 24 million a year. However, regardless of how much it really was, this really did help. They still couldn't fly domestic, but they were able to become a little bit slimmer. Because of the switching, they were able to do some downsizing. They furloughed some pilots. And Mm. while this did help in the short term, or for the moment, pilots, as you can imagine, don't care for being furloughed too much. That'll come down the road. Mm -hmm. But right now, it's good. These changes helped. In 1976, look, we're we're moving along two years already. Pan Am made a profit for the first time in quite a few years. And not just eking by. They made a profit of $100 million. I do have to ask quickly, mm-hmm. how 
with the lack of accounting. Well, did they, they fixed that, right? Kind of. Because uh, I was going to say, how do they actually know they made a profit? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the books just look good that day. Yeah, it's just funny because uh, it's like, where are the numbers coming from, you know? I don't know. Yeah. But no, they did make money. That's that's good. Sewell is being hailed as a hero. He is the guru. He is making Pan Am profitable again. Things are looking good. However, I, I do remember I was reading one source and they said it would be really hard to not make money because travel industry is just booming. All the airlines did very well. It wasn't just Pan Am at this point in time. Hmm. So can you really attribute it to Sewell versus just positive market forces? Mm-hmm. Hmm. 1977. So look, we jumped another two years. Nope. One year. I can't do math. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, they made forty-five million dollars. wasn't a hundred million, but still very much in the black. And nineteen seventy-eight went quite well. However, Pan Am is losing market share. They at their height they had twenty percent of the overseas market. Now they just have seven and a half percent. But as we said, overall Pan Am is back on the upward swing here. And the real effects of all that lobbying, as well as some other forces, which we can talk about in just a second, was the deregulation of the airlines. Way back in episode one, we said, we're not going to talk about it, but now we're going to talk about it. What did deregulation do? For Pan Am, what it did was lift restrictions so that they did not have to apply for routes. They can create routes to any airport that they like, providing that the airport would allow them to make the route. The regulations of the airports did not lift. This is just on the airlines and the planes and the air, yeah, the airline industry, not the airports. There, there is a difference there. So that's one. Number two, they could now charge what they wanted. And since the fares being paid are not determined by a regulatory committee, it's now being determined by the market. One of the reasons deregulation came about was because of Southwest Airlines down in Texas. Southwest, when it was created, their founders realized that if they operated within a state, they weren't bound by the regulatory laws because it was only if they were flying outside of a state. So because of that, they were able to charge lower than the competitors, which caused quite a stir and they weren't too thrilled, but they were thriving and they're doing very well to the point that lawmakers made enough noise and said, why are we regula- Why do we having regulation in this industry if they don't need it? And they used Southwest as the prime example. However, the major airlines were not fond of this. In fact, Delta, among others, although I just tingled them out because I found their article, uh, took out an entire page mm-hmm. in a paper. And I have a quote of, uh, I took out a few quotes, I should say. It was a uh, multi- multiple pages. But here's a little quote from Delta and their thoughts on the matter. Quote, Will our nation's system of commercial aviation survive as a vital private sector industry serving the public interests? Believe it or not, that survival could very well be in doubt. To be certain, the airline industry is anything but ill. Nonetheless, it is being dealt a dose of, quote, airline deregulation medicine by its Friendly deregulation doctors. Friends like that the airline don't need because the medicine might kill the patient. In short, as Delta sees it, the Senate's proposal, if passed, would accomplish the very opposite of what it means to do. Why dress more government regulation in the clothes of deregulation? Isn't this an attempt to deceive? 
Yeah, they, they weren't very happy with this. They don't want competition. And and there was another art or paragraph in there. It's it's really interesting when you see these large companies start talking about protecting the small business when their business is being affected. Like they were talking about yeah. how, oh, small business is going to be eaten up because you're just going to see larger businesses merge or buy out these smaller lines, which is true. I mean, that's what happens in the free marketplace. They weren't wrong about that. But it's also just called capitalism. Yeah, it's just it's just another card for them to play when it works in their favor. It's funny how that works. Which we see that all the time today too. Concern about small businesses being affected from large corporations. But that noise goes away pretty quickly as soon as their problem does. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Yeah. So major airlines don't want deregulation. They're able to charge the fares that are approved by regulatory committee. And keep in mind Part of what's included in their fares is their high staffing prices. The airlines are unionized and they're, if you remember, the pilots make quite a bit of money and they're able to increase their prices based upon what they're paying their staff and the board is okay with that. When you throw in deregulation, all of that gets thrown out. Now that doesn't matter. It's just up in the air, whatever they want to charge. You can see why large airlines don't want this. Mm -hmm. However, we're not at that point right now. Right now, Pan Am, I'm sure, is partying it up in their boardroom. Because all they needed to be successful was to have domestic routes. And now the legislation that was in place preventing that is gone. I would like to point out one thing that is still around for regulation is the safety measures that did stay. As you can imagine for good reasons. Sure. So you are the CEO, Matt, of Pan Am, and you are no longer bound by regulations. So what do you do to get domestic routes? There are a few different ways to go about. I'll throw them out to you. You can think about it. Number one, create your own routes. You buy planes, you hire staff, you talk with the airports. It'll take a little bit of time but you'll have your own routes. That's option one. All right. Option two, buy an airline that has domestic routes and write a check. Is there an option three? Those are the two <laughs> options I think that they were looking at. Oh, time. okay. Great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, based on the two options that you've provided me, um, because we know all CEOs are provided two options and two options only when they make that decisions. That is it. And they always pick the uh, best one. Always. That's right. Um, I would go with the acquisition because they already have the infrastructure in place. They have the employees. They have the assets. All I need to do is, like you said, write that check, and then the routes are mine, whether I'm integrating the company fully or I'm just buying them and continuing to do their own thing and reap some of the benefit myself. And that is a very sensible choice. And I think that the next step would then to be dive into the questions of who do we acquire? What are they going to do for us? I don't think Pan Am asked any of those questions. I think they just stopped with acquire domestic airline. Hmm. So but before we go into there, let's just talk about there are multiple types of acquisition. We're just going to talk about two of them. One is a horizontal acquisition. So if you are a cell phone company and you purchase another cell phone company that also sells cell phones, then that is a horizontal acquisition because they are doing the exact same thing that you are. Okay. 
So what's a vertical acquisition? A vertical acquisition, if you are buying something that is supporting you or in your supply chain, like a warehouse or a distributor or a supplier or a parts manufacturer, that's a vertical acquisition. You're helping, it's not helping necessarily direct sales, but you are, are owning more of that supply chain. So in this case, they are doing a horizontal acquisition. Although it can get tricky because they also have, right, they have mechanics and they have warehouses and they have all sorts of other things that come with the acquisition. But broadly speaking, you have an airline buying another airline. We're just going to blanket that and say it's a horizontal acquisition. So what happens? They find an airline. Okay, that's good. So what do we do now? They try to buy it. They don't get it. There's a bidding war. Ultimately, Pan Am wins. Remember how I said they had a profit? They had a profit of, I said, $100 million and then $45 million. They bought this company for $437 million. Mm-hmm. And one of the big benefits of merging, especially with a horizontal acquisition, is that you can reduce waste. Not so much with a vertical, although ideally just by purely buying a or when you have a vertical acquisition, you should be creating efficiency within your organization. But horizontal is a little different. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, like I said, you have the two cell phone companies. Maybe you can eliminate some management positions. You can consolidate. That would make sense. Mm-hmm. Except Sewell said, and if he had told, if he had said this before the merger, I just would have not have believed him. But he followed through, which is really interesting. He promised that no one would lose any jobs, and he followed through with that, which. Kind of makes you scratch your head. I I would say that it's good on him for making a promise and then following through, even if it's detrimental, I guess. But, you know, at the same time, I, I wouldn't have spoken so soon about making that promise because it's just, you know, there's so many things happening. It's hard to foresee what needs to really take place, you know, uh, to eliminate some of the redundancies if you're going to have that acquisition. Yes. So it's like... It's nice that he, you know, maintained his ethics, but at the same time, it's like, maybe don't say anything. It's a double-edged sword. It's really <laughs> the, weird. I do give mm-hmm. him props. At the same time, you know how badly Pan Am is doing, and it's kind of going opposite of what would normally happen. So it is odd. I guess it would probably help to know what airline he's buying, which is based in Miami. It's called National Airline. Did it fly nationally? Ooh, you nailed it. Another <laughs> synonym for domestic <laughs> Yes. Well, I was I was going to say, because if it was from Florida and it said National Airlines, but it was just flying through Florida, that'd be pretty funny, you know? <laughs> if they, like, had one flight that moved into Georgia, they could technically call themselves That's national. true, just like those international airports that have one flight out. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That's we go right. to Canada. Yeah, international. Good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I do say that, though, for a reason. Florida, New York, International, which is Pan Am. Florida and in some of the words of the some of the sources they call them country pilots. So hmm. you find an airline, you buy it. Although there should be some questions before you buy an airline or before you buy a company, which is question one: What will this do for us? And by the way, there's no right or wrong answers. You just should know the answers to these questions to move forward, so you have an idea of what you're getting into. So, what will it do for us? And I think Pan Am got this. They said they have domestic airlines or air or routes. We're going to get those. Okay, check. 
I think they stopped there. I don't think they asked any more questions. Because if they asked some of these other ones, <laughs> I don't know if they would have gone forward. Number two, they, they may have done this one as well, which is, what is the cost? And this is a two-part right. question. Because the first is, really, what's the upfront cost? And then number two to that, or three total, what is the cost after acquisition? Because that's a very different number, and it could be even more than the initial acquisition cost, depending on what you're getting yourself into. The mm-hmm. next one, which we've talked about at length off the air here, is what is their culture and how do we integrate that into ours? And are we even compatible as companies? Yeah. I'd even add into this the question of, it's kind of related to cost, but what is what do we estimate the airline to actually be worth? Because if you think about that bidding war, um, there's a very good chance that they suffered from winner's, winner's curse, you know? just completely overpaid for something that really wasn't worth that much, you know. What'd you say was 475? 37, Matt. I mean, that's four, this is discounted. Four, oh, sorry. <laughs> 437, you know, and like let's say it's just actually worth 200, you know, it's pretty big. Yes. Winners curse. I will right? say yeah. in Pan Am's defense, if overpaying for somebody else may be okay for you, depending on how you integrate them and use them, they may complement your business quite well, more synergistically than somebody else. And so you are willing to pay more. And Mm -hmm. to put in a little accounting thing, there is an accounting term for this, which is called goodwill, because they believe that companies don't typically overpay unless they see a reason to. And so on a balance sheet, they'll put it as goodwill. It's money over what the company is kind of valued at. Right. Yeah, I mean, and what I mean by worth is, what is that worth to yeah. me, right? You know, it's like the same thing as when you buy something off of eBay, and somebody wouldn't pay more than seventy bucks for it, you know, and it's worth technically worth ninety, but you pay one fifty because to you it's worth one fifty, and there's something inherent yeah. in that, right? But if it was actually worth a hundred dollars to you, well, then you just you know threw away fifty dollars, so. You know, that question, I guess, comes down to something that we may not know, which is what was it worth to them? Absolutely. And the next question, after you ask about the culture, should we absorb this country? This country, oh my gosh, wrong, wrong (laughs) subject here. Should International routes acquired. (laughs) Should we absorb the company? And essentially, to the point, they have no identity anymore. They are just Pan Am. Or should we keep them separate and we just own them as a subsidiary or however they want to integrate them at the top level? But essentially, they are national airlines to everybody else. The other thing, just real quick, is and this is a quick, I guess, a teaser for the next season. Sometimes when you change the name and, and just integrate it completely, you lose all of that brand recognition that that company had. And yes. There was a reason for why they were successful. And now you've ruined it because... You change the name to well, let's let's just call it Lowe's in this case. You change Ace Hardware to a Lowe's, um, which I know is not what they did, but you know you might completely affect the way Ace Hardware was running things because of their reputation. And so you you're at a loss now. Yes, and let's see what happens with Pan Am. So Matt, CEO here. Oh yeah, yeah, hot, hot shot. <laughs> yes, you've been promoted. <laughs> What do you do? So you, you have national, and actually, I'm, I'm going to give you a few pieces of information so you're not just going off this. Uh, Pan Am did look into national, and they said, oh, they, they are a different culture. You know, They are kind of little puddle jumpers. They're considered these country pilots, 
And then you have us, you know, we are the sophisticated international suave airline. And National also has different kind of aircraft. They're little puddle jumpers, like I just said, not, you know, 747s or big mm-hmm. air- airplanes doing international routes. So all the equipment is different. They're planes that the mechanics that Pan Am had never worked on. It's just really different. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? Do you kind of leave them on their own? Do you just say, just slap a Pan Am sticker over that national one and welcome to Pan Am? I think related to my previous comment, and I, you know, maybe you have this answer. I would say I'd be more willing to try to integrate them if the public perception of national was low. And like you're saying, puddle jumpers, not necessarily a positive term, you know, but it, but even if that's the case, if overall the people who fly national see it as something that is decent, at least enough for them, then I'd probably say, okay, well, let's keep it separate because it has that brand recognition. They're doing okay. But if they're not doing well and they have poor recognition, poor rapport with their customers, I would look at integrating them, understanding that the culture integration is going to be a huge hurdle. Um, it's really, it's yeah, it's like really about, you know, which of these two things is the lesser evil, right? Yeah, um, culture integration, something that should be taken with care and a mm-hmm. lot of thought could take years. So, so let me ask you then, if you know, what was the perception of national besides, you know, public jump? Were they just like a really second rate airline then? I no, know you were saying they were doing quite they... well, actually. They were okay. making a profit. Yep. They did not have a bad reputation to my knowledge anyway. Then in this case, I would say keep them separate because the co- the cultural integration is such a difficult thing when they're so different that uh, to unfortunately drop some business jargon, realizing the synergies of the <laughs> of the acquisition, I really don't think uh, would work with such a big, big cultural difference. So I'd keep them separate with that positive public perception if they're doing well. That sounds like a nice thought out answer from a typical M- MBA. Sewell's <laughs> not a typical MBA. He just slapped some paint on that yellow national logo. And I think those planes took off with blue streaks because it wasn't even dry yet. (laughs) (laughs) They just completely absorbed national airlines. Like one day, the next day they woke up and the planes were blue. Did the employee, well, you're probably going to get here, but did the employees from national know anything about this? Or did they also just wake up one day and they're like, surprise, you're you're Pan Am now? Yeah, I think they had. I mean, it was more than just one day because they knew about the acquisition coming. In in spirit, I mean. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Yeah, in spirit. We, we can imagine it happened that. However, let's say you're a national pilot and you go to bed with your national uniform and the next day you wake up and you find out that everything is Pan Am. You might feel a little disjointed until the benefits person says, just to let you know, we're increasing all your wages to Pan Am pilot wages. Hmm. That's attractive. Might make you feel okay about what's happening all of a sudden. Yeah, not too bad. However, there was another issue. Sewell did not lay anybody off. And if you remember, seniority is determined by years of service for the company. And now you have all these pilots at National. 
that would love to come in at their current rank and years of service. Just slot them right in. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Pan Am pilots weren't too pleased. So as you can imagine, there's some comp. There'd be fighting words here. What does each group want? So you have the national pilots and the Pan Am pilots. The Pan Am pilots want them to come in right where they came in. They're brand new employees to Pan Am. They come in right there at year one. Okay. That's not how National wanted it. (laughs) Right. National wanted it seniority by ratio. So people would slot in relative to their experience level. If you had 10 years at National, you'd come into Pan Am at your current rank with 10 years, which is great if you're a national and if you're somebody that's been at Pan Am for 10 years as a first officer and all of a sudden you get bumped again so you can't be a captain, you got a problem. This is a really big issue. It went to arbitration and take a guess with what happened to arbitration. You get the middle of the road answer. They It was just a mix of seniority and ratio. Nobody is really happy. So yeah. some people were being slotted in as as if they were first your pilots and other people were getting slotted in as ratioed. There were pages and pages on how this worked. And uh-huh. I just summed it up with that one sentence and said, it was a mix and nobody was really happy. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually expecting you to say that Pan Am just said, we're going to do it the Pan Am way. You that, all, you're all first years. <laughs> that does sound like a very Pan Am answer. Yeah. And you know, that is, which... Yeah, maybe. I could see them doing that. And, you know, you see this in organizations today. Blanket statements are made because blanket statements are easy. Mm -hmm. We're going to do it this way, and that's the way it's done. Because you don't have to think too much. If everybody does the exact same way, that's it. And also, this issue still exists today, too, with definitions, uh, titles that have varying definitions. You know, so if you're an associate product manager at one company and... You're like, well, to be an associate product manager, I have to have zero to two years of experience. And then you go to another company and they're like, oh, well, actually, an associate here is uh, two to seven. Just making oh, up yeah. numbers. But, you know, um, right. So, I mean, this this is still something that continues today. But in this case, it's even more forthright because at, at least at that point, you have a choice. But it, here, you're you're just being pulled in. And whatever the arbitration decision is, that's, that's it. it. Yeah. I'm sure there were some people that were thrilled and others that weren't. I mean, so it, it, it didn't matter. It, it, nobody was going to be really happy. Either going to have 50% of people hate you and 50% love you or vice versa, right? All right. So they acquired an airline. They have domestic routes. They should be doing very well. And guess what? In 1978, it was making some money. Well, that's good. Except, I mean, it did just spend, you know, almost half a billion dollars Buying an airline, but that's okay, because you're buying an airline, they're supposed to be complimenting you, they can now implement maybe that hub-and-spoke model, they didn't, but, you know, potentially they they could have. So things were going well, Uh, except by 1980, so look, we are chugging along here, like double the pace of our last episode. And that's 1980, and they're losing a million dollars a day. Ouch. So what do you do when you are on track to lose $350 million in a year, roughly? That's a lot of money. It starts looking around to salvage and sell off parts of its business. I would like to say at this point in time, after National was acquired, a lot of sources say this is what did it for Pan Am. 
Mm. I wouldn't say that, but I would say that this is the cinder block that got tied to the person's foot that's swimming. I think they just need to swim really, really hard. Uh, but this definitely was a catalyst for its rapid descent over the next few years here. Right. I, I was going to ask, you know, what what you thought some of the downturn, I mean, are they losing, are they specifically losing demand or is it uh, all airlines are suffering and Pan Am is being hit especially hard because of their recent acquisition? They're just so deficient. Uh, they're just not doing well. American and United Delta, they're not, even if they are doing poorly, they're not, not like Pan Am. You're going to see in just a minute here what happened one year later. So what does it do? It sells its headquarters in New York City for an insane amount of money. So remember, they bought the entire national airlines for $437 million. Mm -hmm. They sold their headquarters in Manhattan for $400 million. Okay. The one well, office building. <laughs> wow. It was the highest. It's a building. Yes. They, it was the highest ever sold at this point in time. They keep doing building. a lot of firsts over there. They do. Not always yeah, for they, good reasons. Yes. <laughs> so this didn't look bad. So they sold it to Metropolitan Life, Metropolitan Life Insurance. I'm sure I punched that a few times. All right. So they sold to that company and they're just renting back. And it was so. Yeah, it said the culture was shifting inside the company, even though nothing really changed. It's just felt different now that you know your tenants versus an owner of the building. Mm -hmm. So you did ask me, were the other airlines hurting? And they were, like just not as bad as Pan Am because there was a recession in the late 70s. However, as I just said, no one was hurting quite as bad as Pan Am because Sewell met with the bankers. So they sat them all down in a room, and he said, right, uh, it's 1981, and we're going to lose $300 million this year, which is the highest ever for an airline. And if you can take a pretty sure bet, you can bet those bankers weren't thrilled with this news. Yeah. And cut the company's revolving credit in half. Wow. Okay, so that's not great. Uh, Sewell, who was not too long ago, just claimed as being the savior of Pan Am, is now all of a sudden people are realizing, oh yeah, he actually really isn't that easy to get along with. And the board had enough. He was losing hundreds of millions of dollars. No one wanted to work with him. So he, uh, quote unquote, retired early in 1981. This other guy took over, which I'll just name once here, Bill Waltrip. He just took over very temporarily until they found a new CEO. And I like his condition. He said, I'm only going to report to the board. I'm just here to keep the company solvent. And that's it. A nice rousing speech there. He was a, he was a titular CEO. Yeah. Not in practice. <laughs> to be fair, he didn't want the job. He was really just there to tide things over until they found somebody who could. Pan Am is still not doing well. So it looked around again. He said, what are we going to sell? I said, okay, let's sell some of our 747s. So they sold eight of them and then rented them back. And some people may wonder, why would you sell something and then just rent them right back? Got a good answer, Matt? So I would say if you need that money from that asset right now, maybe that's to pay off, off debt or to cover some kind of rising cost, then you might want to take that larger sum by selling that asset and then slowly paying for that asset to rent it over time. 
until maybe you can buy it back again, you know, at least to get you out of the current jam that you're in. Exactly. And Pan Am is losing money hand over fist. And so they're just trying to remain solvent and stay open a few more months or years. I mean, just, I mean, yeah, they're in bad shape. They're kicking the can down the road right now. They sure are. Yeah. And they canceled some orders from some new planes. That wasn't enough. So they looked around again. And they laid their eyes on their little golden egg, the hotel business, which we haven't really talked about because it's not super relevant to their overall story. But they sold it for $500 million. And it was quite profitable when they sold it. Mm. Yeah. So... They, but they, they, they weren't leasing anything back from that, right? That nope. was just that just sold and, done, sold and, and done. Mm. Yep. So they got some. They have an influx of cash, but at the end of the day, Pan Am needed a savior, someone who was skilled in finance and in the airline industry, and they finally found their man, Ed Acker. Maybe not the most dramatic ending, <laughs> uh, but maybe I'll just leave you this little tidbit. Because I know this is going to matter, Matt. He was born in Texas, and he was the first Pan Am CEO without an Ivy League education. Mm. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So you can stew on that. And that is the end of Pan Am Episode 3. And in the next episode, it's going to probably be a little long, but we are going to finish this series and see what happens with the eventual crash of the Pan Am airline. All right. I am looking forward to it. Hey, everybody. Matt here. Uh, That's the end of the narrative portion of the podcast, but Joel and I are going to discuss for just a few minutes a couple of things. If you're just interested in the narrative portion of the podcast, uh, you can feel free to skip this part and wait for our next one to come out. But if you are interested in the discussion that we're going to have, feel free to enjoy. Well, first thing, Sewell's gone. So, Matt, what do you think? Transformative leader? Um, I would not say transformative. Part of me wants to say that he dealt with things as they came. And, you know, I know we, we posit these questions all the time and wonder, you know, well, if you were the CEO, what would you do? And it's tough, though, to think about these decisions that had to be made and... You can really think you're going in the right direction based on all the information that you have and just make the 100% wrong choice. Now, the caveat to that is I don't think he always did his research based on what you were saying, (laughs) Um, especially thinking about the acquisition and knowing what they knew about it or lack thereof, I guess, right? You know, it was just a poorly utilized acquisition. So I would not say he was a transformative leader. I would agree with you. He didn't do anything that was particularly special. He was rough, which, you know, doesn't exclude him from being transformative. However, he wasn't bringing the airline to where it needed to be in five years. I tell you what, if he was able to truly make the airline profitable during his tenure, I could maybe give it to him. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the acquisition was poorly done. Maybe at best. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I'd be really curious to hear why they just wanted to absorb the company instead of keeping separate. My thought is maybe they, you talked about having a name recognition. Pan Am still, I mean, as a company, is 
flying as the customer experience has a good name. And so they maybe thought that that would carry them through and would be stronger than national. Yeah. I, I also thought it was funny that, you know, as, as he was losing money, the board members were like, you know, he's really hard to work with. And <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like it was all okay while you were making money. But as soon as it stopped, it's like, you know, he's really difficult to work with. I just, it's, I, I don't know. We might have to get rid of him. <laughs> it's a good thing we've come so far in business today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's, you know, we'll probably see many, many, many more stories of this. Um, you know, the the old adage that history repeats itself is like we continue to see the same themes time and again today you know technology has changed workflows have changed processes etc but people are the same and they they will act the same yes and in business 101 they'll teach you that companies are profit seeking they are very efficient Okay, and that's good. You know, that makes sense and it's easy. And then when you start taking master classes, they say, yes, that's not actually true. We teach it because it's easy. Uh, companies are not, well, they might be profit seeking, but they are not necessarily efficient because companies are made up of people. People mm-hmm. have flaws and they bring those flaws to them to work. And you can see that. And just yep. as this example, they are starting to make a cascade of decisions that do not benefit them. And I think those are the inherent flaws of the individuals and just shows that, yeah, companies are not always efficient. Yeah. Any other yeah. thoughts uh, right now? So Pan Am has another 10 years left. So it's not like they're crashing immediately. Uh, you do have this next guy. He didn't have an Ivy League education. So, I mean, who knows how well he's going to do. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely wasn't an MBA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it'll it'll be interesting to see, you know, did he did he revive it for a time, or was it still a sort of slow burn burn down to to you know down to the end? You know, were they continuing to lose money, and even though they got this financial guy in there, it's still not working. Yeah, Plus, you know what? Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, I mean, I I know what happens next, uh, so I'll just tell you. I mean, without giving too much away. Uh, if I was on the committee and I saw this, what this guy had done, I probably would have voted for him as well. Uh, he has a pretty impressive resume. Okay. And if you had a troubled airline, he definitely would be on the short list of the ones to be at the helm. Mm. Okay. Interesting. So my thought then is that, uh, you know, things are just going to progress in a way where they're no longer really under his control. Forces outside of his control will cause the company to continue to collapse. Yeah. And another thing is companies have momentum. That's why really large companies take so long to usually collapse. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, well, when you have positive momentum, that's great. When you have negative momentum, even if you are quite skilled, there are a lot of forces moving against you that are just crushing you. And when you are under the, the amount of debt that Pan Am is in you're starting to limit your options. They're starting to cannibalize their business. They're losing revenue streams. Granted, they needed it to stay afloat, but that's harming them in the long run. And so you can just see the slow cascade and you need an exceptional leader, a transformative leader to get you through that. And if I had to put a number of how many truly transformative leaders are out there 
as a percentage, I'd say like one to two percent. That's just in my mm-hmm. experience. I mean, truly transformative leaders, not people who just call themselves transformative. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're making me think of these large corporations and that, you know, change in a large corporation is often very slow um, and can feel kind of painful to employees. It's like all you don't realize how all of these processes are so tightly wound together like a bunch of roots, like a plant that has become root-bound. And it, it can do one of two things. You can slowly, not that you actually do this with plants, but you slowly separate the roots and pull things apart and find you know, what's dead and what's, what's inefficient, and you begin to change things, or it constricts itself and it kills itself. You know? um, and it's, it can take a while for, to, for that to, to manifest itself. Um, you know, and if the company, like you said, with m- movement, if the company has positive movement, it might feel painful. It might look like it's going in the wrong direction in the in the moment. But if everything's moving in the right direction and all of these things are working together, um, you should hopefully see a positive benefit. But you can also have things look really great and you're moving in in a bad direction because, like we've said before the best time to change is when things are going well, you know? Um, and uh, sometimes, you know, you let that, you ride that high for too long and then it's a little hard to extricate yourself from, from where you're at. Yeah, so we will see what happens with Pan Am in its final descent and go from there. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to talking to you next time. All right, guys. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) Bye-bye.